Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. For this episode, we are going to discuss active shooter situations. Um, you know, in light of recent events, uh, I, I believe there was a shooting today in Denver. Uh, not all the details are, have uh, gone out yet, but uh, more and more of these active shooter situations are, are taking place um, across the United States and across the world, really. So, uh, back on for this episode is Jay Paisley of the Crisis Applications Group. Uh, Jay spent a number of years as a Special Forces medic in uh, the 5th Special Forces Group, and then he went on to be a medic in a special missions unit within the U.S. Army. So, Jay has a lot of experience and insight, and um, some of the points that he brought up during our discussion were very intriguing and interesting to me, and I think... It's important, and because of that, um, I think you, you'll see and hear some more from Jay and, and some of the guys at the Crisis Applications Group through podcasting and through written articles uh, as things relate to the medical field and you know what steps can be taken to mitigate the risk and um, you know how can we get uh, civilians trained. Um, you know, on a basic level for, you know, kind of trauma medicine and uh, things like that. So it was very interesting. So uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So here is the interview with Jay Paisley from Crisis Applications Group. Hey, what's up, guys? Um, I'm back on with Jay Paisley of the Crisis Applications Group. Uh, Jay spent 20 years in the U.S. Army, 15 of them in Special Forces. He was an 18 Delta Special Forces medic with the 5th Special Forces Group, and he was also a medic at uh, Special Missions at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So, Jay, uh, thank you for coming back on, man. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. No worries. No worries. So, you know, obviously, the um, this you know tragic tragic event that took place in Orlando is something that is being debated in terms of you know how can how can we respond to it how can the on the medical side how can uh things improve and you know o- like just overall how can people better prepare themselves uh for you know the next crisis or something where where people are really expecting something else to happen because it's really hard to uh to stop these kind of, you know, homegrown lone wolf, you know, radicalized attacks. Um, so obviously you have a lot of experience in, in security and, and medicine, and you have an interesting take on on things that people can do and, and also, uh, you know, on the kind of broader spectrum of the discussion on on how to deal with these type, how to respond to these type of incidents moving forward. Yeah, uh, it, it is an interesting time, and I'm seeing a whole lot of dialogue coming out, and that's a good thing. Um, and, I, and I'm happy for a chance to kind of interject my two cents. When we start talking about like mass shootings or mass casualty events, uh, they're, they're not new. And the military as a whole has got a lot of experience with dealing with these type of medical events. Uh, you know, how many times has, has, has a unit been engaged on the streets of – you know, Baghdad or Kabul or Pickett City, and we've had to deal with the aftermath. I mean, this isn't new to us as an institution. So the military has a longstanding history of being excellent at triage and 
in dealing with these type of uh, medical crisis. And uh, the good news is 15, 16 years into the war, we have such a flux of veterans back into the civilian community that this dialogue is getting carried over. And one of the reasons you're starting to see a lot of segue into the civilian emergency services is the veteran population kind of coming out there and bringing with them the, the lessons they've learned off the battlefield. So uh, in light of Orlando, I think now is the time to you maybe expound upon a few of those principles since they're up in front. Um, I like to simplify it with saying there's two basic responses to a mass shooting, mass casualty event. To, to sum it up, I would say, first, you have to stop the damage. That's kind of a no-brainer. So it doesn't matter where you stand on the whole you know, Second Amendment discussion. At the end of the day, you have to stop the damage. Stop what's hurting the people. The second response is you have to repair the damage. So there's two really interesting numbers that come out of Orlando that are going to have to be dissected before, you know, in order for us to move forward as a country. And that's first, there's 50, 50 people killed. And that's tragic. But the second number that makes it interesting is there's 50 people wounded. So <clears throat> once all the autopsies are done and the data is collected, we have to start figuring out, well, what wounds did they die of? And then we have to start asking the other hard questions like, where was uh, care provided, when was it provided, and who provided the treatment? And I want to be clear, it's not to second-guess the responders on scene. That's, that's, that's not the case at all. But th these are very profound questions we have to do in order to drive our medical protocols uh, moving forward. So the military, obviously, in um, you know, the last 15 years of constant deployments, either to Iraq, Afghanistan, or elsewhere, uh, there's been mass casualty events and, you know, guys are getting wounded in gunfights or, you know, stepping on uh, mines, IEDs and things like that. From what I understand, and I'm not 100% sure on the numbers, but I know that the number of soldiers, Marines or airmen and sailors who are, who survive wounds from the battlefield have increased, um, now, there's obviously there's a reason for that. Can you explain a little bit of why that is? Biggest breakthrough to come out of this battlefield in terms of medicine and the military trauma model isn't necessarily a scientific breakthrough, rather an academic breakthrough, where we have pushed down and decentralized to the lowest common denominator possible, uh, data-driven proven life-saving techniques. So what you're seeing coming out of the, you know, the global war on terror and success is it's the infantrymen, it's the fueler, it's the, it's the clerk, it's the truck driver. They're the ones who are intervening early on and putting into place these medical treatments that are saving lives. And then it's the medics that, were, that are within close proximity that are coming in to finish that initial treatment that was put on place, but it's that decentralization that is saving lives. We're putting tourniquets in the hands of everybody, not just in the hands of the select few. So let's say, so like a TCCC uh, type of program where people can learn this uh, basic, you know, tactical casualty care. Before that wasn't taught to each guy like in a in a unit or a platoon is that is that what you mean generally speaking no i mean now i'm talking 
so let's say 15 years ago, I mean, genuinely before GWAT medicine, the, the, the institution that was in place was the old combat lifesaver model, um, which I think was a good idea, but it lacked some, app, you know, some practical apl- uh, applicability on the battlefield. What you got to look at historically is that for years, military medicine mirrored item for item civilian health care because in order for our military medics to log in the clinical hours they needed to stay current they had to work within civilian programs which meant our military medics basically had to run EMT civilian street medicine in order to get those hours point being uh, it wasn't until soft got into special operations forces got into a few ticks uh, got into a few engagements where that 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 civilian medical model failed them on the battlefield before somebody in any position decided to 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 deviate from that accepted medical practice, and from there the military trauma model or TCCC as it's currently called has uh, kind of come to be known. And is that something that was started specifically within the the U.S. Army Special Operations Command? Well, it it originated there uh, largely because in soft they had the ability to bypass a lot of the the classic red tape bureaucratic you know hurdles to implement new training, new processes, and new programs. Likewise, in soft you tend to have higher trained, specially selected providers whose judgment the uh, uh, the command surgeons as a whole would trust to make difficult decisions. And I'll give you an example. You know, early on, you know, tourniquets, you know, were, were, were all but verboten, taboo, and the trust was placed in the hands of soft medics. Well, go ahead and put tourniquets on in the beginning if you think it's the right thing. They would trust that clinical judgment. The data would come back and, you know, success and momentum were generated. So a lot of things in the medical community that we take, you know, for granted as commonplace now did, in fact, originate on the soft side of the house. And then, of course, as the trickle down into the army, and then from the army as a whole, back out into the civilian world. Tourniquets being a good example of that. So, so basically, what you know, what you're saying, in, in regards to, you know, what has helped the military as a whole get guys who were wounded on the battlefield, and 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 they'll later on survive their wounds is just a basic understanding of each guy who's on the ground, not just having a specialized medic there, is what really makes a difference. And then now, after 15 years of war, you have a lot of these guys are getting out of the military and joining the civilian sector and in whatever field it is. And I guess, does that kind of bring the overall knowledge of, uh, you know, like combat trauma or, or, or trauma medicine higher? Uh, yeah, I mean, instead of calling it combat trauma, tactical medicines probably, or austere medicine, depending on the venue, is probably more appropriate. We got to look at the combat, the tactical situation, as nothing more than a man-made barrier between your patient and the medical care your patient needs. Now, the military's long understood this because we've been isolated from a medevac, but it's only in the recently on the civilian side of the house where they've been exposed to these tactical scenarios, you know, in mass that is, where they've been engaged with these tactical scenarios where even though they can all but see the hospital, they simply can't get to it. So the civilians uh, are taking advantage of the veteran population that are coming onto the workforce with, you know, and they get 
directly they benefit from their experience and and the science and the protocols that these guys are bringing with them off the battlefield. This is a win-win for everybody. So, you know, there's a lot of debate about, um, I believe it's nationalizing the uh, the medical training for EMTs and first responders. Um, I'm not sure exactly what people are saying about it, but I know there's a, a pushback against that, and I know you specifically don't agree with that. And can you explain why? Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, unless you want your emergency services to be, you know, ran like the post office, you know, then we probably need to avoid that. The bottom line is every municipality has got its different rules for, for budgeting, who's in charge of this. There's different geographical responses and population responsibles. That's just, it's impractical to think we're going to capture with a single unifying medical protocol nationwide. Rather, if the federal government wants to get involved and facilitate this dialogue, um, there's a few things I think that they can do. One is on the financial side. Um, a lot of these municipalities are cash-strapped and don't have the ability to to fund these programs. Now, I'm not one for, for pushing federal subsidies, but at the end of the day, if we want a federal answer, it, it probably needs to come in the form of uh, giving them the financial uh, capital that they need to invest in their training. There's a virtual army of veterans out there who – are more than qualified to, to run this TCCC, TECC on the civilian side to run this training for the municipalities. And the municipalities that I've engaged with personally, at least, um, they're begging for it. They're ready for it. They don't have genuine access you know, within their municipalities to the funds it takes to really run a program. Secondly, I think <clears throat> public education um, can take on a couple new forms. One, I think everybody's starting to realize anecdotally at least, you know, people are starting to realize the value of learning how to put on a tourniquet and put on a chest seal. I think that's that's generally well received within the civilian community. But I think if, again, the federal government wants to get involved, my challenge would be access the, the public school system. I mean, look at what your, I don't know about your kids, but I know my kids, uh, when they take you know, public health or, excuse me, social science and, and all that other stuff, they're not really getting a lot of life skills. There's no reason why, you know, 20 hours your freshman year, 10 hours sophomore, 10 hours junior, and then cap it off for 20 hours your senior year. This broken down over the course of a high school career. We couldn't educate a national audience, you know, over the course of a generation or two. Basically, I'm looking at like the approach that, you know, the Israelis take. Their civilian community, for obvious reasons, take all this stuff very seriously. But they have a National Guard mechanism in which to institute that training. We don't. So <clears throat> if we want to imitate that, that national resiliency and the seriousness it takes for, you know, educating our population on, on how to render these life-saving steps, you know, public schools are probably a great place to start. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. You know, it's 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 really interesting. Like, you know, before the the biggest kind of threats were, you know, you know, the Russians or something like that, or the Chinese, or you know, some kind of conventional army, you know, which is 
you know, very conventional. These guys over here have their, you know, the red coats. We have the blue coats, and you know, let's fight. But now the the threat that we're facing is a little different, in that you know you have these kind of you know lone wolf attacks or, or things like that. So I think it makes a lot more sense if the civilian population was better prepared. And you know, like you said, it it doesn't take much to have a, a program at high schools, you know, teaching basic. Uh, trauma medicine and, and and you know how to use a tourniquet and things like that. So, you know, it's and it's interesting because we can get real deep into it. You know, like instead of all of the the garbage that's on TV, you know, why don't they just show, you know, a, a couple of minutes of something that could be a, a hard skill that could you know train somebody to save someone's life or you know what I mean? And and if if more people are trained, then more people would would survive. Any type of accident or incident, and not just a lone wolf type of mass shooting attack, you know, a terrorist attack. Yeah, and and it's, it's, it really is kind of that simple. I think the biggest barrier we have in the way is not to put too fine a point on it. Frankly, our lawyers. I mean, medical malpractice and medicine, as as we've come to appreciate it today, is under a, a tremendous amount of uh, legal scrutiny. And I don't envy our law enforcement guys and our emergency services providers in, in that sense that, you know, good intentions mean nothing when you're in front of a jury. I mean, I know that sounds coy, but at the end of the day, that's a reality we have to accept. And uh, <clears throat> a, a lot of the reasons why you see resistance to change in the medical side of the house isn't the, isn't the understanding for the need of it. Rather, what are the implications if something goes wrong? Um and that, that's, that, that is a big barrier. So that's something I think that at the national level, um, if we institute some federal education protocols and so on, it can get sorted out across the country as as the various legal disputes are bound to pop up from this. Um, but that's ultimately what these various uh, committees are intended to do. People have to understand that TCCC and TECC, as we understand, that isn't telling you what to do. They're giving you a series of data-driven guidelines that they recommend, but you're not obligated to stick to that protocol. This is important to understand because as there's more and more of a national push to provide credentials for TCCC and TECC, uh, we get away from that ability to decentralize this knowledge down to the lowest common denominator. We're giving it back to the few coveted positions of the people who are quote unquote qualified to release that knowledge. And I'm not, you know, I'm, it's not that I'm against credentialing or, or, or any of those things. Rather, we got to be careful that we don't create a mechanism that, that covets that knowledge within the, the hands of the few rather broad scale application of this knowledge down to the lowest common denominator as proven by the military trauma model. Yep. That's an interesting, uh, interesting point to bring up. So now you also, we also wanted to discuss, uh, the triads itself and, uh, you know, and, and kind of, I guess we can talk about a little bit of the first responders, uh, in Orlando and, uh, you know, I know we're still waiting for like autopsies to be done, and and then and that way you'll know exactly how you know this person was killed or this you know what what caliber uh, bullet wounded this person and 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 that kind of data. Um, so yeah. yes, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was saying there's already uh, 
and again, I, and I'm reluctant to bring them up because I, I realize at this point they're anecdotal at best. But there's already stories of people, you know, shot in the arm waiting for care, um, you know, and, and essentially bleeding out. And this again, I, and I and I can't be more clear on this. This is not a gig on the response of the responders. I mean, I'm not asking anybody to make organization out of, out of chaos. That's not how it works, and I'm the first to admit that. But um, as a professional, we have to kind of dissect the the cold hard unforgiving numbers of the event so that we can better prepare ourselves in the future. Um, that being said, there was an article that was put out recently by the LA Times about um, EMS access to the hot zone um, being delayed and or not provided in some cases simply because the scene may or may not have been deemed safe yet. And I understand that. That's a challenge uh, many of our municipalities are facing is when does sector secure or scene secure translate into bringing EMS into the warm or hot zone for care. And that's a subjective thing. I mean, we have to accept as a country, if we want to bring quality health care closer to the point of, uh, to the point of injury, we're going to have to increase the amount of risk our EMS providers, you know, are willing to accept. And there's a lot of hurdles, uh, between that idea and the application, I mean, there's there's municipal bureaucracies, there's red tape, there's insurance requirements, there's even, um, you know, uh, welfare groups that are out there, you know, uh, what do you call them? Oh, crap, the word escapes me now, but uh, basically there's entire groups that, that are not geared to make that change. Well, if we know the answer is bringing EMS closer then we can focus on that in one program. And another solution is we can make this medical training available to the law enforcement officers. That in of itself is a hurdle because what is their job? You know, if we compare them to the military, they are the 11 Bravo. They're the guys out on patrol. They got enough on their plate already. It's a lot to ask these guys to take on TECC training at the care under fire level. But one of the things my squadron uh, sergeant majors told me a few years back, we were doing a, a hostage rescue. It was a tr- for training. We were doing a hostage rescue on an aircraft, and some guys were complaining that, <clears throat> you know, when they climbed on the wing and they did this, that their plates made it impractical and they couldn't sneak in. And the squadron sergeant major basically broke it down for us and reminded us that the hostages are our mission. The American citizens are our mission, not the assault. We rescue the hostages by conducting the assault, but the hostages are our mission. It is imperative that these guys survive because our assault is for nothing if they die on the backside. And that stuck with me. That was a very profound thing. And I think it's that style of language that we have to interject when we start talking about medical treatment. Nobody wants to do it. It isn't sexy. It isn't shooting guns. But at the end of the day, there's no reason why, after a few years, uh, it can't be, you know, almost mandatory training for the application of tourniquet or various other hemorrhage control devices, and in some cases, airway training at the patrol officer level. It just takes some will. Right, and I know one issue that police departments all over the country have is, um, like you said before, they're strapped for cash, and they don't, in a lot of cases, from what I understand from talking to officers myself, is a lot of guys will train on their own, you know, whether it's, you know, 
pistol uh, carbine, whatever whatever kind of training it is they do, they do it on their own time with their own budgets because mm. they, they simply just don't have the budget, you know? They do. And in some cases, uh, anybody who's ever dealt with government money understands that. Um, if you have $2 million in your training account, there's limitations placed on that $2 million. So let's say, and this is just for an example only, let's say the Atlanta PD has a million dollars set aside for teacher plus C training. Well, that sounds great, but they may have constraints on them in that. In no way can any of that million dollars be spent on the fire department, you know, doing joint training with them. So in many cases, it's not that they don't want to do it or they don't have the resources. There's a lot of bureaucratic red tape between point A and point B. And, and that, those are the type of areas where I think federal dollars can, can help. So I'm not necessarily advocating for federal dollars to come into the program, but if you're in a position where you're at a large metropolitan area and the, the municipal budget don't allow for law enforcement and joint EMS operations, that's where federal dollars can step in and fill that gap. Right, and and that's where it could be very effective. Um, you know, I, it's not something that I personally have thought about before, but after hearing you talk about it, it makes absolute sense. And I know that uh, there's money that's just waiting to be spent uh, on the federal level for different kind of things. And then there's also money that's being spent on things that are very unnecessary. Um, and I guess that's just part of the uh, the way the government works. Um but it, it's something that's definitely worth discussing, and I'm glad that you brought it up. Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> I think if you talk to the, at least in my experience, I think if you talk to most of the people who are out walking the streets and, and riding the ambulances and, and the fire trucks and doing the work, uh, the, the end user and the mid-level management, they're very well tuned into this, and they are chomping at the bit to, to get in there and do something about it. Um, but the roadblocks seem to be inherently the same all across the board, and it's, it's not unique to them. But most of these municipalities run under centralized leadership, for, in, i.e., an elected leadership. Which, you know, and, and again, I'm not busting anybody's chops. At the end of the day, you know, the mayor of said city is not directly involved in the consequences of. Of a, of a failure. Now they may get some blame, but they're not the ones being shot at and dealing with people, you know, bleeding on the streets is generally speaking, slow to adapt. But what makes units like, you know, Delta force and seal team six and green beret so effective under that centralized leadership is because they adopt a, a bottom up driven approach to success. It comes from the lowest common denominator. There's a trust factor that has to be, you know, in place there. And it's going to take some time and some training and I think the veteran community is primed um, to make that happen. Give, up, give them that driven up, that bottom up driven approach, and, and establish that trust. So, yeah, I've seen you know in the last couple of years, I've seen a lot of uh, different kind of uh, veteran uh, medical companies. Uh, you know, kind of guys like yourself, where you guys are bringing that experience to the civilian world and I've seen it, uh, you know, to where there's joint training with uh, EMS, EMT, uh, fire departments, police departments. So I, I see that there is some improvement being made on a national level and, you know, different municipalities and things like that. And I think with uh, the 
the uh, people are trying to figure out how to properly uh, mitigate the risk for these kind of terrorist attacks. Um, I think even, you know, politicians who are not dealing with the day to day struggles of, uh, you know, that the first responders have to deal with. I think even, you know, at this point, it would make sense to them to increase the budget for these kind of things to help mitigate these risks. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we we live in the information age, so our ability to to take in information from across the world is the greatest it's ever been, and it's only going to become bigger. So, it, within the information age, we have to understand that nationally, you know, violence is going down. It just is. You know that 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 fact has to be inserted into the national dialogue, and for political reasons, obviously, it's not. Rather, we have to understand that within the information age, the face of violence is changing. So we have to change our response to that, that, that threat because it's changing. Um, we we got to avoid you know, knee-jerk reactions like you see with the gun discussion. I mean, that's, it, it's just off the face, not helpful. But um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously pro-2A in every way. But it's it's a distraction from from the reality of of the response. And like I said, you know, regardless of where you stand on the Second Amendment, um, there's really only two basic responses to this: that's stop the damage and repair the damage. Um, and that's what we have to focus on. We have to uh, adjust our response to the adjusting and changing threat. So, yeah, I haven't seen or heard of. Any politician is talking about, you know, how can we fix our response time? How can we make sure that the police who are responding can also, you know, stop, you know, place a tourniquet on a victim and stop them from bleeding out until they can get to a hospital? I haven't heard the broken down details of, you know, how can we shave off a little bit of time? You know, and it it's just like you said, it just becomes real political and. Um, it does. It gets convoluted very fast, and that's yeah. the problem. You're listening to to that centralized leadership. It's not that, regardless of where they stand on the issue, they're not trying to do something about it. At the end of the day, they're not the ones down in the trenches, you know, fighting the battles. So they they, they tend to give, and it's nothing nobody already knows. You know, it's they tend to give you know the type of answers that's gonna you know frankly get them votes in the next election. You know, they tend to address the emotionality of the event, not the facts. And, and that's why, you know, again, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm not trying to dissect or armchair quarterback the response of the responders. I mean, it's, they, they, in light of everything they were faced against, they did phenomenal. Um, the question is, how can we do better? And uh, I, I, I myself and don't hear a whole lot of, you know, part two of that response has repair the damage just the emotionality of stop the damage and what that means to the guns discussion. So, yeah. And you know, one thing I would like to bring up and talk about, and I think, you know, just thinking about it, it, this could probably play a part in uh, helping bring up the level of training down to the, to the lowest common denominator is this, these kind of tech med competitions. And I know that you, were a part of a tech med competition recently, and you guys won first place as well. Uh, can we talk about that a little bit? So, 
I run the training for our tactical competition team that's called Weaponized Medicine. Um, and it's not, it's not just stood up to go compete. It's basically a, an in-house research and development team where we test gear based off our experience as tactical medics, uh, mine as a special missions medic, and then our other teammates as providers. And we come out there and we use it as a test bed for the different tools and education platform for the local uh, EMS directors. Well, recently, May 22nd of this year, we did a TECC-sanctioned national TAC med competition. Um, it was open to everybody in the country, and we went out there and we won it. And it was good because <clears throat> its its goal, yes, is to you know propagate itself and and to insert some competition into the to the tactical medicine paradigm, but really it was a great chance for us to cross-pollinate and show military trauma model techniques across civilian trauma model techniques and, and it allows everybody to kind of pick and choose the, the styles and the equipment that they wanted. It was all around great competition. Uh, it was, I want to say, it's kind of all a blur now. It was all, it was five or six specific events, uh, Generally speaking, mass casualty oriented, as in we have more than one casualty. And the tactical scenario and the technical scenario behind it would change. And I don't want to give out too many details because I don't want to, you know, give out the answers for next year's competitors should they should they come up against us. Uh, but yeah, you're gonna we had to do some some high angle rescue work. Uh, there were some burns and blast damage and so on. It was it was a great event. So participating in this event were combinations of uh, EMT, firefighters, and active duty military, ex-military? That's right, and SWAT medics. So it's available to to everybody at the EMT basic level. Although there's no hard and fast requirement for an EMT basic certification, that's generally what the medical uh, events are, are, are geared towards. And... The procedures that you're expected to know are going to be right out of the TECC treatment guidelines. So if you are an EMT basic and you're looking to participate in this, you may have to learn surgical airways because that is included in the TECC guidelines. So that's kind of the the standard of which you're all graded across the board. And that's what keeps it competitive is although I may be using soft style medicine, I'm being graded against SWAT medics who or using the TECC algorithms as well. Um, next year, it's going to be even better. Um, and I'll have to dig up some links. If you guys come over to cagmain.com, we got all the stuff up there. Uh, but yeah, it's open nationwide. It's a great way to get out there and uh, flex your muscle and show your municipalities what you got. Uh, that's important because if they want to know where all their money's going, there's no better way to show them than a first place trophy, right? Exactly. So <clears throat> where was this hell at? This one was held at Charlotte. It was done the day before the uh, SANZA conference, which is uh, ran by the Special Operations Medical Association. And the idea was to get all the brains in one place, let's let them compete, and then let's have them talk about it throughout the rest of the week. So if you're in Idaho and you want to fly out to Charlotte, North Carolina, I, I will tell you it's definitely worth the trip, uh, not only from the camaraderie of the competition, but from the continuing medical education, you get out there at the SAMSA conference after the fact. So it's a great place for all the brains of the TAC Med to get together and and, and share and uh, see what each other are doing. You know, hearing about this, it just kind of gets my brain going and 
you know, I think the the kind of possibilities from these the possibilities that are endless for you know first responders, military, or, or you know even civilians uh, who want to learn these these kind of things. And I think it's obviously it's important. Uh, and I think these kind of uh, competitions could be a great thing. And you know, I, I think it's something that perhaps the federal government should get involved in in uh, sponsoring some of these events that will help teach people and and uh, things like that. And I, I think, I mean, th- this this thing could be huge. You know, if it continues to grow each year, and perhaps it's held in different states and and all, you know that kind of thing. I think so. I, I I'm inclined to agree. I mean, the the tactical medicine or austere medicine, as I like to call it. Um, is it is a natural uh, extension of the firearms market, and what we're seeing is a lot of these people, firearms enthusiasts, uh, who are going out and learning self defense and self reliance and how to how to take care of themselves in a tactic situation, are seeing the obviousness of the aftermath and are pursuing on their own uh, the medical courses um, as they as they come. One thing I, I would challenge everybody to 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 understand is that with every major catastrophe, be it environmental or tactical, so on, where, where people are engaged directly by some type of lethal anomaly, the one universal characteristic across the board is trauma. Katrina, tornadoes, uh, obviously shootings, that goes without saying, but trauma is the one universal feature of all these catastrophes. So, if you're willing to to go out and invest in your knowledge and and in, in, in firearms and shooting, then it stands the reason for every reason that you learn to shoot. It pays to go take a TCCC class or an austere medical class to back up that training. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, it 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 makes sense. And you know, you brought up how the Israeli pop the civilian population in Israel is. I guess per individual that they have a basic understanding of uh, how to treat trauma and, and how to react and things like that, uh, you know, out of a, ne- a basic necessity to survive. And a, a few episodes ago, I had two former Israeli soft guys on and we were, we were kind of, we discussed a couple of different things, but you know, one thing that we did briefly talk about was how even in the, in the playgrounds, uh, some of the equipment is like bomb proof, so and, you know if if something happens, you know the children can run under this caterpillar and they'll be safe from any explosion or bullets or something like that. So, I think the Israeli people uh, on the civilian side is a great model to kind of look at when deciding that maybe as a as a nation we should, you know, bring the basic level of understanding to a higher level. Yeah. I mean, I think they're, they're in terms of how they address the seriousness of, or how they address their resiliency. I think the Israelis, now there's a lot of problems with their system, but the way they address uh, their population is, uh, is probably a good way to look at it. I mean, this goes down to the, the psychological aspect of readiness that, I'm sure everybody in this audience is familiar with. I mean, there's a vast majority of the United States population that really does not want to accept the fact that there's evil people out there and that they will hurt them. And they think 
And I'm not belaboring the point, but they think that honestly they can just vote the problem away, and that's not how it works. We are all in charge of our destinies, like it or not. And the outcome is greatly influenced by what you choose to do. So, <clears throat> I mean, the idea of having a first aid kit, you know, kind of makes sense. But when I tell people to upgrade it to a trauma kit, all of a sudden it's, well, you know, there's a little pushback. They have to face the fact that people could get hurt. People can get shot. It's like, well, <laughs> I hate to say it, but even in a gun-free zone, i.e. Chicago, you know, these things happen. So step up and buy a tourniquet. Right. And, you know, I've had this debate with people. And obviously after the Orlando shooting, you know, the, the gun debate is front line and center. And some of the responses that I've gotten from people is, oh, well, you know, you can just, you know, you call the cops or whatever it is. But, you know, to me, I, I, I wouldn't, obviously, if something goes south or something goes bad, um, in order for it to be contained or whatever, there there's going to be first responders there to, to take part in that. But it can also be contained or prevent, stopped by the civilians, you know, the people who are there as it's happening, whatever it is. And I just think that people need to accept that and, and uh nurture that idea that you should be responsible for your own destiny and you should be as trained as you can in the event of a, a situation like this taking place, you know. And, and like, for me, I live in, in New York City. So, you know, I take the subway every single day. And obviously, you know, New York is a a target for terrorism. And... You know, just taking the subway every single day, there's so many people who are there and you never know who's there and you never know who, you know, who you're sitting next to. So uh, it, it definitely pays to be aware and to have some kind of training, you know? Yeah, it does. I mean, you have to look at law enforcement as, as an institution, as a response to an event, not necessarily the answer to an event. Now, that response could come in the form of a deterrence. And in that sense, it's the answer to an event. For instance, if somebody's robbing a bank, well, unless the cop is in the room with them, nothing's going to stop them from wielding a gun and demanding the money. But the threat of law enforcement coming after the fact and the, and the consequences of that action serve as a deterrence to prevent people from doing stuff. That's just the reality of it. There can't be a law enforcement guy with you uh, every day of the week. And in fact, the criminal element specifically targets folks that are A, defenseless, we know that, and B, uh, are, are removed from those responses. I mean, they want you to be isolated and as far away from law enforcement as possible. So <clears throat> if, if you look at your own lives throughout the day, it's not that, you know, there's plenty of cops throughout the day, but when you go look at where you're at, how close are you an actual, to a, gun, to a guy with a gun who's going to defend you? How close are you really? I mean, you're not. So the Second Amendment, being a stroke of genius from our founding fathers as it is, you know, is, is the answer to, to, to your actual personal security. And, you know, I don't want to turn it into a whole gun debate, but at the end of the day, you know, the current gun debate that you, you hear going on in, in light of Orlando, in my humble opinion, is just ridiculous. I mean, if the American people genuinely thought that guns were bad, uh, they have the powers built into the Constitution to do something about it, but they don't. They don't. And this is evident when you look at how we repealed prohibition. If the American people really wanted to drink beer, look, they made it happen. They amended the Constitution as within the powers of the Constitution to do something about it. But you don't see that in the gun debate. 
what you see are a bunch of half measures that people are willing to accept, you know, blah, 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 concessions, et cetera, et cetera. It all comes down to the same thing, gun ban, gun ban, gun ban. And, you know, it's the same nonsense. And at the end of the day, you know, it was, you know, in my opinion, again, radical Islam that did this, whether it was directly sponsored by ISIS or some institution is irrelevant to the fact that the guy uh, claimed to be who he is and he went and did what he did and there's the problem. So, you know, the gun debate's a distraction. It not only distracts from, you know, the reality of the event, but it also distracts from things like uh, the medical response. It distracts from all the things that we could be doing to actually remedy the situation, nationally that is, and focuses on the emotionality of the event. So that's it. That's my two cents. I'm not getting into a whole political de- you know, debate about it, but, you know, go to right. way. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so, hey, man, I just want to thank you for coming on. And, you know, you obviously have a a lot of information to share that is very important. Um, can you drop some social media handles, websites for anyone who's interested in learning more about uh, Crisis Applications Group? Yeah. Um, so today was just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of dialogue. If you guys want to keep chatting with me and my crew, you can come by our webpage at www.cagmain. That's cagmain.com. We're on Instagram at Crisis Application Group, and we're also on Facebook at Crisis Application Group. If you got any questions, hit us up. All right. Thanks for coming on, brother. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. That was an interesting interview, to say the least. Uh, Jay has a very rich understanding of not only the the medicine side of trauma, but also how things work on the legal side and how the, the, the municipalities have these different hoops that they have to jump through and how budgets work and things like that. And uh, one thing that we would like to achieve going forward is to bring awareness to the need for uh, the training to have officers who can uh, apply, you know, first aid and perform triads and stuff like that. So I look to hear a little more from the crisis applications group. Um, You know, it's a group of combat veterans, of EMTs, uh, uh, surgeons. Uh, It's it's a very diverse group, all with uh, medical backgrounds. And I think there's no better time than to kind of bring to the forefront of the discussion how to do the most that we can to mitigate the risk and to, uh, you know, limit the amount of casualties in a mass casualty event. You know, after the after the fact of uh, someone being wounded, you know, like we, like I just think it's unacceptable to have people uh, bleeding out um, on a scene, you know, on the street while they're waiting for medical care. Um, you know, so so uh, changes need to be made, and you know, hopefully we can uh, help uh, make a, a push to get that change through. So. Uh, with that, that's the end of the episode. Uh, my website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. I have two Instagram handles. The first one is IG Recon, and the second one is Global Recon underscore Inc. We are also on Twitter at IG Recon, and you can find us on LinkedIn at Global Recon. Uh, be sure to subscribe, uh, download. 
comment on iTunes and SoundCloud to help keep us uh, towards the top of the charts on the government and national categories on iTunes. We appreciate it. And I will see you guys in a few days with another episode. Peace.